So in 2005, David Foster Wallace, who's an American writer, he gave a, a commencement speech at the Liberal Arts College of Kenyon College. And that speech has become kind of famous. It's even been made into a little uh, pamphlet. And that speech is called, This is Water. And he begins his, uh, his commencement speech with this short parable. It goes like this. So there are these two young fish swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish, they swim on for a bit. And eventually, one of them looks over at the other and goes, What's water? And Wallace then goes on to explain the parable's meaning. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. So if you think about it, a fish swimming in water, it, it's just the air it breathes. It, it is just, it's, it's, it's so apparent and obvious that it can be easy to miss it. And I share this story because when we come to the first chapter of Genesis, I don't want us to miss the most obvious, important reality. The one that is often hardest to see and talk about. You see, if you go right now online, if you go pick up books on Genesis, you're going to find that most of the books and articles, the conversations and websites surrounding this first creation account in Genesis, all of them focus on the wrong thing. What happens is questions focus on how and when. How did God create? What was his mechanism for creation? And how old is the earth instead of who and why? Questions of how and when are raised to a level of importance over the who and the why. And the danger of asking the wrong question is that we miss the main point. In short, when we come to Genesis, we often don't know what the water is. The Bible begins with creation, not first and foremost to tell us about the creation, but to introduce us to our creator. That's the main point of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 begins with the most basic and most fundamental question we could ever ask or need to know, and it's this, who is God? Before when he created, before how we created, we need to know who created. In fact, the Bible itself is fundamentally a book about God. We often come to the Bible and think it's a book about us. And it does get to us. It does talk about us. And it does tell us about who we are and how we should live. But before it does that, and more fundamentally than that, the Bible is a book about God. The very first subject in the book of Genesis is God himself. In the beginning, God. And if you flip all the way at the end, spoiler alert, to the final words of Revelation, it's a prayer asking God to come. Come, Lord Jesus. So from beginning to end and everything in between, the Bible is a book about God. Now to be sure, Genesis 1 does not tell us all that could be or needs to be said about God. It will take the rest of the Bible to give us a full and robust answer to that question. But before it gets to the question of who we are, before it gets to the question of how we're supposed to live, the Bible introduces us to our maker. 
And I love it. The Bible does not give a defense or an apologetic for the existence of God. There's not this preface to the book where it says, hey, let me tell you the the reasons for uh, God's existence, why you can um, rationally believe in it. It simply introduces us to the God who has always been. When you read chapter one, when we just read chapter one, God is clearly the subject and the point of the first creation account. I don't know if you were keeping track, but God's name is mentioned 35 times in those 34 verses. Who is the subject of Genesis one? It's God, it's not us. Now, will we get to who is man and who is woman and what it means to be human? Absolutely. It's a foundational question as well. We're going to get to that next week. But this week, we want to enter into Genesis 1 to see the God who is there. Now, this sermon is going to be structured with two main movements this morning. The first question is, who is God? And this will be primarily the bulk of the sermon. And we're going to learn five things about God as we move through this text. Again, not everything that could ever be known about God, but these are five things I think that surface as we look at Genesis chapter one. And then the second movement, we're gonna ask, ask, what difference does that make? Who is God? And then what difference does that make in our lives? So first, let's start in verse one as we ask, who is God? Chapter one, verse one, beginning on page one of the Bible. Everyone should be able to find it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the first thing that I want you to write down if you're taking notes that we learn about God. God is eternal. He's self-sufficient and independent. Those three words. God is eternal, self-sufficient, and independent. So if you're taking notes, write that down. God is eternal. Here's what that means. God is, he was, and ever will be. There's never been a time or a, 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 a whatever concept outside of time we can imagine that God has not existed. It stretches our mind to even try to think about eternity past, the, the time, if I can even say that, before time. In fact, our vocabulary isn't well equipped to talk about whatever that is before time. It stretches our minds, but whatever that place and space And dimension, whatever it is, was, God was there. Listen to how the psalmist says it in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, humans, we are bound by times and schedules. Some of us do better with that than others, if we can be honest, right? But God is not. We exist in time but God does not. God is the God of infinite days. God is simultaneously, think about this, the God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future, bending time itself to his perfect will, and it's unfettered. He is completely unrestrained by the constraints of time. God is right now in the past. He is right now in this thing we call the present. He is right now in the future. All of it is before him. The past holds for him no missed opportunities. The present holds for him no anxieties. Think about that. Whatever would cause you towards anxious thoughts this morning, the, 
this present moment that we're living in, none of it stirs anxiety in him. The future holds for him no uncertainties. I think that's why we often are anxious because we don't know what is going to happen next. But for God, he already knows because he's there. It holds for him no anxiety. He was and is and is to come. He is unbound and unlimited by time. Time is his invention, right? He's free to act in time as he wills because he exists outside of it. I know that stretches the mind, but that's who God is. Number two, he's also self-sufficient, right? God is eternal. He's self-sufficient, independent. He's also self-sufficient. Here's what that means. His very pre-existent, a pre-creation existence speaks to his self-sufficiencies. And when we say in the beginning, we haven't even gotten to God created. In the beginning, God is there. It speaks to his self-sufficiency. His ability to create speaks to his infinite ability to provide. This means he is needed by all, but needful of nothing. He is 100% self-sufficient. Acts and Paul's uh, speaking and preaching in the book of Acts in verse 17 and 24, he says it like this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. By the way, there's a lot of scripture in today's sermon, and I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. And one thing you're going to find out is how often writers appeal to creation to make their point. So I'm going to do that today. Uh, Every point I'm going to make, I'm going to pull a scripture that does the exact same things. We often think about the creation account, but there's actually lots of creation accounts all throughout scripture. Over and over again, it's, we, we, uh, the, the scripture writers come back to the fact that God is our creator. It's amazing how much we for, forget about that. And in this passage, Paul looks back and he says, everything, God, he's the one who made the world, everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not served by us as though he needs anything. Why? Because he's the one who gave us everything. Why would God need anything from us? He's the one who's given us everything. He needs nothing outside of himself. And here's why that is good news for us. Because he needs nothing else, he cannot be controlled or coerced. God cannot be manipulated or blackmailed by another who possesses something that he lacks. Think about that. Everything we need, he has and he delights to give. When we need something, in that moment, we're kind of controlled by that thing that we need. This is how I feel every time I need my car fixed. I walk into the mechanic, and it's just obvious. I don't have the knowledge, the skills, the tools to do the auto repair myself. I'm at their disposal, right? They start spouting out terms, and I'm nodding my head like I know what those are. I don't know what those are. I don't know where those go. I didn't know my car had that. A couple weeks ago, my car wouldn't start. I was stranded in the Panera parking lot off Main Street, and I had my car towed to Peter's Auto Repair. Shout out to those guys. They do great work. We've become friends. So when they tell me that my starter is shot and needs to be replaced, what do I do? Do I say, no, I've got it from here? No. I reach for my wallet, and I hand them my credit card. 
And I just say, hey, when will it be ready? How much do I owe you? Right? I need my car repaired. And in that moment, they're the ones in the driver's seat, not me. But God is never in a position of need. He has everything he needs inside of himself. Why? Because he is self-sufficient. And with that, God is also independent. Because he's self-sufficient, he's also independent. That means God himself is uncreated. And he's the one who created everything. God does not rely on anyone or anything or any force to exist. He is simply existing. He's without origin. He is the source of all life. And he is utterly independent. He is not his creation. There's a distinction between him and his creation. And his creation is not him. He is independent of it. Isaiah chapter 40, 21 through 25, verse 25 says this. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's God looking down on us, saying from his vantage point, we're like grasshoppers. He's the one who stretched out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in. Think about that. With the ease with which you draw a curtain, that's what it was like when God stretched out the curtain of the heavens. Simple to him. He's the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then Isaiah says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah is saying, God is completely independent. You can't even compare anything to him. Friends, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What that means is God is eternal, he's self-sufficient, and he is independent. Second thing we learn about God is that he is the creator of everything. We're still in verse one. God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of everything. That verb to create, bara in the Hebrew, in the Bible, invariably, which means every single time that word bara is used in the Bible, you know who the subject is? God. There's not one time in the Bible where it says a human or a person barad something. Humans do not create in the same way that God creates. God alone creates Full stop. 100% of the time, that word is used. God is the subject. Now, sometimes when that word is used, bara refers to God making things, something from nothing. Sometimes uh, it's him talking about um, bringing about certain situations to pass or the patient work of him bringing something to his desired end. But every time, the Bible is clear. God alone truly creates whether it's circumstances situations or substance God is the one who creates now you and I we might take raw materials and combine them into things and we'll say look what I've made look what I've created but we're not creating something from nothing we have to take something to shape it as a hobby I enjoy woodworking and building furniture I enjoy designing it. I enjoy going and getting the materials, the lumber. I enjoy taking those materials, shaping them, and turning them into something useful and hopefully beautiful. 
but I am not creating like God is creating. I'm simply taking part of God's already creation and I'm reshaping it and rearranging it into a new product. But only God can create something from nothing and only God can patiently see his work to perfection. That's God's domain, not ours. What has God created? The answer, everything. When Moses writes heaven and earth, it's a poetic way of him saying, as far as you can see and as far as you can see down here, it's everything and everything in between. God has created everything. Listen to how the first creation account ends. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Friends, you do not owe your existence to some figure named Mother Nature. Whoever she is, she's not real. She did not create you. This world was not brought into existence by some blind, unguided, natural force. Everything you can see and everything you can't see, every molecule and atom, every neutron and proton, every river and mountain, the land and the sea, the hills and the plains, every creature and creeping thing, every star and planet, every galaxy and the ever-expanding universe, all of it was and is being created because of God, the maker and creator of heaven and earth. He made everything. Number three, God is all-powerful and all-knowing. The third thing we learn in this uh, chapter is that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Look at verse two with me. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We need to know that God is unimaginably powerful and there is no limit to his knowledge. He is the God of infinite power, which means he is all powerful and never grows weary. He is able always and at any moment in time to do all that pleases him. You and I are limited in our power, right? Sometimes you want to do something, but it is outside of your power and control. God never feels that way. He can do all that he pleases, that pleases him. There is nothing stopping him right now from doing anything that is consistent with his perfect character. He is in control. Nothing gets in his way. Nothing overpowers him. You read these other cosmologies, these other um, stories about how the world began. There's always this dualistic fight between good and evil. God is not in some cosmic power where he is being outflanked and thwarted everything is happening exactly according to his good and perfect plan there is never an external limit on his ability to act he does all that pleases him and everything that is consistent with his perfect character but not only is he all-powerful he is also infinitely knowledgeable he is limitless in his knowledge He knows everything. Think about this. He knows what was. He knows what is. He knows what will be. And this is the one that blows my mind. He knows what could have been. 
every counterfactual of every moment and decision, he knows all of it. So at that moment before the moment that God creates, he knows exactly what kind of world he wants to make. He knows exactly what he's doing and he creates in accordance with his perfect will. His first movement of creation, as we see in Genesis 1-2, is to create the raw materials of the earth. Moses tells us it's a formless void and dark earth and the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And then as we heard in the scripture reading this morning, God begins to speak and the heavens and the earth begin to come alive. Just think about the power. He speaks the universe into existence. Light is created and then separated from the darkness. The sea and the skies are created. The earth is transformed from a barren wasteland to a fertile habitation for life. Then the sun is formed to give energy and warmth to the earth. And together with the moon, there's a structure and a rhythm and seasons. I love that. I love that if you go back and read and you want to nerd out for a minute, go look up old creation uh, myths, Egyptian ones, Babylonians. All of them worship the sun and the moon as if we serve the sun and the moon. And in the book of Genesis, God says, no, 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 they're not gods. They're created things. In fact, they serve you. They give you seasons and time and structure. When God creates uh, creatures of water and air and land and they fill out this ecosystem of the earth think about the power god speaks and creation appears have you ever tried that doesn't work only god can do that remember from last week we talked about how moses is writing this to the people of Israel. Moses isn't there in those first days. He comes later. This is written about 3,500 years ago and he's writing this to a people who have been delivered out of 400 years of slavery and they're headed to the promised land. Now they would have, this group of people would have grown up in Egypt. They would have been well versed in uh, the creation myths of Egypt. You see, in their creation myths, creation comes about through this cosmic battle between lightness and darkness. And the God of darkness is personified by stormy waters. And the God of light is personified by the sun. And through conflict and through loneliness, a pantheon of gods are created and each one of them given some particular area of domain in creation. And here in Genesis 1, Moses says, don't believe the worldview of your past. He's deconstructing all of the untruths that they've been surrounded in. He even uses language similar to their creation stories to directly speak against the lies of their creation myths. If you've ever wondered why in Genesis 1-2 it talks about the, 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 the deep, the, the waters, he's specifically referring back to that their, uh, the Egyptian god of the stormy waters. And he's saying that's no god, it's, it's part of God's raw material that he used to create. God is not created. He did not create out of loneliness. He is not in some cosmic battle between lightness and darkness. He created simply and powerfully out of his own desire to expand and display his glory. 
God does not share his dominion. There are not other lesser gods who have areas of domain. God has created everything and he shares it with no one. Listen to Job 38 verses 4 to 11 and you'll see the power and knowledge of God described by God himself. If you ever need to be humbled, read Job 38 to 40. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? I'd love to see God's tape measure. You know, mine's 25 feet long. Think about God's tape measure. Who determined its measurements? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea and doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves be stayed. Are we, are we good at keeping the ocean back at bay? No. When the ocean surges, we just deal with the aftermath. God said, I have determined how far a wave will go. God laid the foundations of the earth. He measured it out. He set the cornerstone. He set the boundaries for the ocean as if he were building a small backyard swimming pool. That's power. That's knowledge. And this is just a taste of Job 38 to 40. I encourage you to read it. It is a good thing for us to remember our station that we are not God. Line by line, all throughout the book of the Bible, God is flexing his unlimited power and knowledge. And when you get to the end of Job 40, all you can do is worship because God is the creator of everything and everything exists because of his unimaginable power and limitless knowledge. Number four, fourth thing we learn about God. God is purposeful and intentional. Number four, God is purposeful and intentional. Now we don't have time today to go line by line through every single detail of the creation account and go to each day in detail. Today's sermon is really to take a step back and see the God who is there. But as you read through that, do you see the sense of purpose and intention? God is organized as he creates. It's like he has a plan. There's an order to it. He speaks and whatever he speaks comes into being. Let me give you an example from day one. Genesis chapter one, verses three through five. And we see this order over and over throughout the days of creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. There's his command and it was. Then God saw that the light was good, him pronouncing it good. And God separated the light from the darkness. So he's, he's involved in the work. God called the night day. He called the darkness night, giving his dominion over it, giving it its name. And then there was evening and the morning the first day. Then you have this time marker. Every creation day follows that pattern. God speaks by the power of his word. Light comes into existence. He determines and declares it good. He separates light from darkness, gives them names. And each successive progression of creation follows this pattern. What is God doing? 
he takes the formless and he gives it form. Remember Genesis 1-2? The earth was formless and void. It had no form and it had no substance. God takes the formless and he gives it form. Then what does he do? He takes the void and he fills it up. Here's a snapshot of God's purposeful creation order. We got a little chart up here on the screen. You have day one, two, and three. Those days are given to form. Those are the buckets. Day, light and dark, he creates those. Then he creates sky, sea and sky. Then he creates the fertile earth. There's still nothing in them yet. He creates the form, the bucket for it. Then what does he do? Day four, five, and six. He fills them up. He takes the emptiness and he fills it up. So that's where we get the sun and the moon, creatures of water and air and creatures of the land. Do you see the organization here? There's intention. There's purpose. He moves with intentionality and purpose. That's the fourth thing you need to see about God here. And finally, number five, God is a gracious host who invites us to dwell with him. Number five, God is a gracious host who invites us to dwell with him. In creation, we see that God is a gracious host who invites us to dwell with him. Look at Genesis 1, 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, morning, the sixth day. Why did God create? Not out of loneliness. Did you see that little clue in verse 26 when God said, let us make? Let us make? Now we couldn't pull out full Trinitarian theology from that one little word. It takes the rest of the Bible for us to fill in the us in verse 26. But as scripture unfolds, we find that God the Father is the grand architect of creation and that Jesus is the word of the Father building out the Father's plan. And the spirit, we saw him in verse two, is the personal person power of God bringing life to fruition. So every member of the Trinity is involved in creation. Now listen to the gospel of John and the letter of Colossians. Fill out for us this us. John 1, 1, we saw this in our last sermon series. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this Word, was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So whoever this Word is, was with God. He's personal because he uses the personal pronoun he, and nothing was made without this Word. And then he tells us in verse 14, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us as, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John tells us the word is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 16 to 7, for by him, Jesus, listen to this, all things were created. By Jesus, how much things were created? All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. That's Paul's way of saying literally everything. All things were created through him and who? For who? For him. He is before all things and in him all 
things hold together. The reason in Genesis 1, the Father's spoken word has agency and ability to create is because the Father's word is a person. You might have missed that. Let me say that again. The reason the Father's word has agency and ability to create is because the Father's word is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. The word of the Father is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Far from a picture of loneliness and chaos, Genesis 1 paints for us a picture of a God in perfect community and communion. He does not create out of loneliness. He creates because he wants to share his glory and presence with us so that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis talks about it takes community to fully enjoy something. When you find something so good, maybe it's a bite to eat, Maybe it's a movie you've seen or a book you've read. You truly enjoy it in that moment. But you know what brings that fullness of enjoyment to completion? When you can share it. You cut off a piece and you say, you have to try this. And when you give them a bite and you see them enjoy it, what does it do to your enjoyment? It makes it all the better, that's what's happening here in creation. From fullness, God extends that fullness and he invites us to share in his goodness and glory so we can enjoy him. Again, it will take the rest of scripture to fully unpack this idea, but God desires for us to dwell with him and enjoy his presence. Genesis 1 tells us humanity is not an afterthought. And all these other creation accounts, humans exist only to serve God out of the chaos and aftermath of creation. But here in Genesis, we see humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. And he declares it to the world by making us in his image. When God places his image in us, he's declaring to the world, this is the height of my creation. And everywhere they go, you will see a reflection and image of me. And our being created in the image of God is what provides the basis for human dignity, human worth, and value. Why do we believe that every human being, regardless of station and ethnicity, is valuable from the womb to the tomb? Why do we believe that? Because the image of God rests and dwells in every single human. If someone believes that and they're not a Christian, they are borrowing from our worldview. How do we know that God wants to dwell for us? In the very next chapter, God creates a garden for humanity to live with him forever. And even when sin enters into the garden, causing the exile of humanity, the rest of the Bible Every single chapter after that is wrapped up in the question of how will God dwell among his people again? Here's a spoiler alert. We're gonna flip to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. This is literally the very end. John gets a glimpse of how all of time ends. Look what he says in 21. 
And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, don't you see it? Genesis 1 introduces us to God, this gracious host who creates us and invites us to dwell with him. The Bible begins with creation, not to give us details of how, but to give us a taste of who. And here we see that God wants us to dwell with him. And even when we in our sin thwarted it, God continues to pursue that same trajectory so that from beginning to end, God desires to dwell with you and me. So much, in fact, that the end of time is not us going up to heaven, but what? Heaven coming down so that the dwelling place of God is with man. God is a gracious host, and he invites us to dwell with him. Five things we learned about God. I know that was like drinking from a fire hydrant, but that's what it's like to think about God. God is eternal, self-sufficient, and independent. He is the creator of everything. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is purposeful and intentional. And he is a gracious host inviting us to dwell with him. So what difference does that make? Number one, God is God and we are not. This should be the most obvious thing of everything I've just said. Nothing of what I've just said for the last 35 minutes described you and me. None of it. God is God and we are not. But often the most obvious and most overlooked thing is what's obvious. Paul David Tripp writes this. There is someone at the center of all things. There is someone who rules over heaven and earth. There is someone who defines what pure love, power, wisdom, and faithfulness, righteousness, and grace look like. There is someone who controls the forces of physical nature and administrates the events of human history. Friends, there is someone who authors the plot details of the story of every human being who's ever lived. There is someone worthy of honor, dominion, and power. There is someone deserving of complete allegiance and the unending worship of everyone. There is someone at the center, and it is not us it's not you and me guys we are not the center of all things in fact when you and i try to make ourselves the center of all things it only ends in brokenness and disappointment and friends this should be the most freeing news you could hear today because that means the pressure is off for you trying to hold all things together You ever feel like that sometimes, that it's up to you to hold all things together? The the pressure's off. You can't hold all things together. But there is one who can. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians, he holds all things together. This means the pressure to control every single outcome 
I need to hear that this morning. The need to control every outcome, the pressure is off. You couldn't do it anyway. So you're freed from that. The pressure, maybe you need to hear this today, to be perfect, it's off. The pressure to be someone's everything, friends, it's off. We are free to simply be human. God is God and we are not. Number two, here's what difference this makes. God deserves our gratitude, allegiance, and worship. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, Lord. This is John worshiping. Worthy are you, Lord, our, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. When you truly grasp the reality that God is our creator and you and I owe him our very life and breath, it should produce in us gratitude, allegiance, and worship. In fact, Paul says the fundamental problem with humanity is that we don't give thanks to God. This floored me the first time I really understood Romans 1. Look what he says, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let me translate. Paul says, just like I've tried to do this morning, you can look at creation and perceive there's a creator and even get a sense of his divine attributes. That's what we were doing as we looked at who is God in Genesis 1. Then Paul goes on, verse 21, don't miss this. For although they knew God, but they're suppressing the truth, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks to him. We simply don't give thanks to God. And what's the result of not giving thanks to God? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you see that? Paul is saying, it is self-evident that all of creation owes its existence to a creator. And it should produce gratitude, allegiance, and worship. But instead, what has humanity done? We have suppressed that truth and exchanged it for a lie he's not saying that it's really hard to figure it out he's saying it's self-evident it's the most obvious thing of all obvious things and the only way you you don't see it as obvious is because you suppress that truth and you exchange it for a lie and our thinking has become futile and our hearts darkened let me ask you this how do you feel when you've labored with your time and money to give someone a gift and they're completely ungrateful. Instead of saying thanks, what do they do? They grumble and complain. I'm resisting every urge to give an illustration about my children right now. How does it make you feel? In that moment, you are experiencing a fraction of a glimpse of what it's like for creatures like us to deny God what he deserves. Our sovereign creator God requires all of me. He requires all of you because guess what? 
You owe him everything. I don't know how many breaths you've taken today. Every single one of them is a gift from God. Friend, are you grateful to God? Do you give him the worship, thanks, and allegiance he deserves? Finally, number three. This is the last point I'll make today. God is still in the business of creation. God is still. That's not something he used to do. God is still in the business of creation. What difference does it make that God is our creator? He is still creating. Do you remember in Genesis 1 where it said that God took what was formless and void and he gave it shape and form? You remember that in fullness? God brought form and fullness in his first act of creation and he's still doing it today. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. The devastation of sin leaves every one of us formless, void, and empty. But when God sees that emptiness, he sees an opportunity for new creation. Listen to Nancy Guthrie. She says, perhaps you've come to see the emptiness in your life as your biggest problem. I have to tell you, that's not how God sees it. God sees the emptiness in your life as his greatest opportunity because God does his best work with empty as he fills it with himself. And the first creation, he takes what's empty and fills it up. He takes the nothing and he makes it something. And this is not a one-time gig. This is exactly how Paul describes what happens to a believer when we believe in Jesus and are filled with Christ. Friends, the reason Moses wrote the, uh, the, bo- the book of Genesis is because after 400 years of slavery, Israel had become a formless and void people. They didn't know who they were anymore. They'd lost their sense of identity and they had nothing left. And as they stand on the edge of the promised land, they needed roots. They needed an identity. They needed to know that God was with them. They needed to know that God had a plan and that he could see it to completion. They needed to know that God was able to take them in their raw, unformed, chaotic, formless, empty state and turn them into a purposeful, formed, ordered, and fulfilled people once again. So let me ask you something. Is anybody in here in need of that? Is there anybody here with things going on that makes you feel raw and unformed? Anyone have things going on that makes you feel chaotic? Anyone here struggling with formlessness and emptiness? Friend, if that is you, you are in the right place. Because God is still in the business of creation. He is still speaking light into the darkness. He's still taking the empty and filling it up. He is still creating order out of chaos. He's still in the business of new creation. Last verse, Isaiah 40, 28 and 21. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary or faint, His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint. You and I grow weary and faint, but God does not. His power is unending. His knowledge is boundless, which means, friends, his storehouse is always full, which means he always have more 
to give. He's ready to give power to the faint and strength to the weary. And those who wait on the Lord will find their strength. Let's pray.